0: You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 55. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hi there, I hope you're having a great week. I used to think that healthy food has to be bland. But then again, if chocolate, wine and spices are healthy and good for you, we live in a pretty incredible world. This always reminds me how lucky we are to have chocolate in our lives. I've been sharing my love for chocolate with students for quite some time. But a few years back, I realized that I live in a city with some interesting chocolate culture. I want to tell you a little bit more about that. My today's guest is Eric Parks. Eric is an architect with a lifelong passion for chocolate. In 2010, he stumbled on the art of chocolate making during a trip to Costa Rica. This discovery led to the next several years of nearly continuous and obsessive chocolate making and creation of his company, Somerville Chocolate. Longing for an excuse to make more chocolate and for the camaraderie of a small group of local chocolate enthusiasts, the Somerville Chocolate CSA, or a Bean to Bar chocolate program, was formed in the spring of 2012. I became a member of the CSA program last spring. The central mission of the program is to involve people with the process of chocolate making by preparing multiple bar deliveries, case, variations on particular aspects of the chocolate making process. So today, by the end of this episode, we'll discuss basics of chocolate making, explore some of chocolate health benefits, and share thoughts on Eric's bean-to-bar chocolate CSA, and also help you to grow your fascination with chocolate in general. As always, you can find links and additional information about this topic in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 55. And now, enjoy. Good morning, Eric. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I am thrilled that you are able to join me and that we can talk about chocolate, something I absolutely love, and I know you do, too.
1: I was just going to say it's an obsession, so it's a never-ending thing.
0: That's wonderful. So, so let's talk a little bit about that obsession. Uh, how did you fall in love with chocolate? When did you know that this is your passion, your obsession?
1: Well, it goes back a while. I've always had a thing for chocolate, but didn't know a whole lot about it in, in any level of depth. And for me, it was a trip to Costa Rica, maybe about, I think, about eight years ago. As part of a stay in one of these eco lodges, we discovered at the last minute that we had a choice of tour opportunities from the area. And I didn't have high hopes for it because I'm not a package tour kind of person. But one of the options was a tour of a chocolate plantation. And we thought, oh, sure, let's go and do that. And I was expecting there to be chocolate bars taped to cacao trees or something for the kids to pluck off. But in fact, it was um, a mind-blowing experience. where you went off through the jungle and you got to sit among the cacao trees and Somebody was there showing how everything about the process, how they're grown, their fermentation and roasting. And they were actually doing all the stuff in the jungle there in a a no electricity environment. And at the end of this process, they were grinding out um, basically crude chocolate, sort of like the stone ground things that TASA does. And I was completely smitten at that point because I'd never known that you could actually produce chocolate on your own. I figured you'd have to have a plantation or factory at your disposal. So... When I got back to the U.S., I started embarking on research and found that at that point there weren't very many chocolate makers, but they were definitely out there, and um, was connecting via the forums and buying some really rudimentary equipment that was being used at that point to refine chocolate. And um, my other career, by the way, is in, I'm an architect, so I was sort of doing this stuff nights and weekends, kind of whittling away in my chocolate-making skills. And after about a year of obsessive chocolate making, I decided to test the waters with breaking into a slight business by making a chocolate CSA, um, where I I would collect, I don't know, I think I had three or four dozen people who would sign up. And if you're familiar with the CSA concept, it's the community-supported agriculture. I call it agricultural appropriation of that term because I'm not actually growing cacao But people would pay up front for a chocolate-making season, and every few months they'd get a collection of bars. And usually it was an analytical process where we'd balance different roast profiles and things like that. So that's kind of how I grew into the business, and that CSA still operates, but um, that's kind of where I approached it.
0: Eric, that was very, very interesting. Thank you. So I actually have a number of follow-up questions for you. So one of them, you were talking about the the trip itself and uh, growing and the cacao trees. I want uh, to bring you uh, back to that. And um, we'll talk a little bit about making of uh, chocolate. But I also want to to ask you a little bit about history of chocolate. Um, a lo- about a year ago, we had a really interesting exhibition here in the Museum of Science on chocolate. And so many of our listeners probably were not there. So I wanted uh, to ask you to talk about the origins of this amazing food. Where does it come from? Uh, how were the beans used historically? Um, How did it become what we are familiar with today?
1: Sure. Um, The cacao, so alt chocolate is, theobroma cacao is the official name of the tree. And it came from various portions of the Amazon, sort of the area between the mountains and the coast in Venezuela, and also a little further deeper into Brazil, or where the, the cacao originated. And there are they they keep kind of tweaking the perception of the genetics but basically there are two two main strains and one portion of the cacao at some point thousands of years ago moved its way up to central america and became used by the maya and the later the aztec as a ceremonial drink and that's kind of what people know more than not that that was, they were the first to use the the chocolate so the the tree itself um was alive and well there and they were using it to make a drink because they didn't have dairy. They would, they would grind it up and add it to water and add various flavorings. They might use honey to sweeten it. They didn't have sugar at that point. And it was, um, used as a drink by the Maya and it was considered a kind of a noble thing. So it wasn't for everybody. It was a highly prized thing. And, the other areas where the cacao was being grown in the Amazon was not used as a food at that point. So it was sort of relatively unknown. The the native populations in Venezuela and Brazil were not using it for that we know of anyway, for food. So there's some thought that they were actually using the the pulp that the cacao grows in to ferment that and make it into a drink. There's some evidence of that but before they were actually using it as a food for the bean. So anyway, that's what was going on when the Spaniards arrived in the New World, as they call it. And they brought the cacao back to Europe, and it became a very prized drink um, before coffee, actually. It was a pretty widely drunk thing, and they had these chocolate houses. And there's a great collection at Harvard of early chocolate paraphernalia for the vessels and the utensils that were used for those purposes. And um, as it became more of a European thing, there they they were different things that were innovated, like they would... At some point, they started adding milk to it to make a milk chocolate. That was a much later innovation. They would um, perfect the act of refining it and conching. That was a French thing from the late 19th century, etc. Um, so to get back into the genetics of the tree, there was um, the, the two main, list, there's classically three subgroups of cacao. There's the Criollo, the Trinitario, and the forestero. And the varieties that were being grown in Central America by the Maya were what we'd consider criollo. And in modern terms, those are thought to have their finer aroma, finer flavor profiles, usually a little bit more subtle. And um, it's not a very intense chocolate flavor, but it's more um, nuanced. And aside from that, is that the trees that produce those tend to be very susceptible to diseases and blights, and they're not as productive. So as chocolate became um, more widely appreciated around the world, they were running into problems, especially in the 19th century, where blights would come by and just wipe out vast numbers of trees, these criollos. And so somewhere in there, I think the French found in the Amazon another variety um, it's called the forestero, which is a much hardier, more productive cacao. It doesn't produce generally a chocolate that's quite as nuanced, but that became what was brought around the world a lot um, to West Africa in the, in the age of colonization there. And so in the modern world, that's most of the cacao that we use is these foresteros, which can also be quite tasty, so it's not to diminish the value of that, but that's sort of like the the dual thing. And there's a third branch, a trinitario, which in rough terms can be considered a combination of the two. I think it was a natural hybridization or something like that. I think it's referred to Trinitario because I think Trinidad is where they first noticed it, though I think it was also occurring in Venezuela. And that is sort of um, a hardier version of the Criollo, and it has also some fine flavor profiles to it. So a lot of the craft chocolate that you get nowadays tends to use a lot of Trinitarios. Um, I know it's a slight divergence from your original question, but there's some re- more recent genetic testing is kind of exploding those thoughts about the original triad of cacaos and the, into dozens of different um, subgroups and and things like that. But that's sort of the history of cacao and how it came to be what we're using it for now.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. So once again, I wanted to take you back to basics. So um, most of all of us know what chocolate is, but... How exactly does it come from the beans that you actually harvest to the form that we are consuming uh, on a daily basis? Can you take us through that? How is it typically made? uh, So the bars or products that are sold in uh, perhaps supermarkets and pharmacies. And also, I wanted to ask you, how does manufacturing or the production is different from what you actually make in your business?
1: Sure. Sure. Well, the basic concept is the at its origin, on a tree, the cacao grows as a seed within a pod um, with a thick shell that might contain anywhere from 40 to 60 of these seeds. And each it's surrounded by this mucilage, this very liquidy or pulpy white, partially sweet stuff. And they harvest these pods. And the first thing that happens is they get fermented. People often don't realize that chocolate is a fermented product. So they take the seeds, including the mucilage, they put them in these wood boxes and traditionally would cover them with banana leaves and ferment it for upwards of a week or so. And that's where it's a critical step in chocolate making. And it's, it happens upstream for me. So I don't really have any say in that, unless I were a large enough operation where I could call the shots. But there's um, a, a lot of knowledge there, is things about how what temperature it gets to, how well they turn it and how often they turn it and do they add things to it or do they inoculate it with other bacteria or yeasts and things like that. Um, so that, um, fermentation occurs and that's what converts the sugars get broke, break down the proteins and change the character of the flavors and all that. At some point they decide it's had enough time doing that and they will traditionally spread it out in the sun to dry and they rake it to keep it moving and things like that. And they try to dry it slowly at first and then speed it up later, but that's stops the fermentation and dries the beans out to the point where they're ready to be shipped. Um, They come to me. And as a chocolate maker, my first step, assuming I've already vetted the bean and I like it, is to sort through it and remove beans that might not have formed properly or that don't look like they're fermented right or um, foreign objects. Since it does come from the jungle, you do sometimes find odd things like bones and rocks and feathers and things like that. Um, And then as far as my input goes, the most critical point is the roasting with a lot of foods The how you roast it. Like with coffee, it, it has a huge contribution to the ultimate flavor and certain cacaos like prefer a light roast. Others, a heavy roast. Other ones can handle any kind of roast. And so that's where I add a lot of more of my, my personality to the chocolate comes in the roasting. Um, after that, it cools down, of course, and then you break the beans up into um, what we, see as nibs. You can get those in stores. The nib is just the inside of the cocoa bean. So the bean itself is surrounded by a, a fairly thin husk, kind of like a peanut husk, but much thinner. And roasting, it helps that separate. So you crack the beans up into bits and you winnow out the husk so that you don't have that anymore. And you're left with some quantity of nibs. And that is essentially pure chocolate. It's a mixture of roughly 50% cocoa butter, 50% cocoa solids. The actual the percentages can vary a little bit. Um, and the first step for me is to put it in a refiner at that point, which essentially crushes those things over some period of time. I use a modified Indian wet grinder. That's kind of like a the most accessible piece of equipment for that purpose that a chocolate maker of my size would use. It's basically a big drum with a stone base on it and then big stone rollers. And as the drum spins around, the rollers smash everything beneath them, between them and the stone base. And it crushes the nibs. It destroys the cellular walls and it allows the the fat to flow freely. And over some period of time, it basically refines those things into a perfectly smooth consistency. At some point along the way, I'll add sugar or anything else that might be going in there, any other inclusions. And it will, in my process, maybe two to four days. It'll take of refining to get it from pure grit and nibs to perfectly smooth cocoa liqueur in which the particle size is so small that you don't really perceive it with your tongue. And then you you have your big pot of chocolate and you can decide, depends on what you're going to do with it if you're going to turn into bars you take it off and temper it and mold it tempering is the process of controlling how the cocoa butter crystallizes cocoa butter is polymorphous so it forms different types of crystals at different temperature ranges and properly tempered chocolate only has the type 5 crystals the beta crystals that form at the higher temperature range and um you temper the chocolate and then you mold it and uh package it and send it away. If you're going to do drink chocolates, you might not need to temper it because it, it's a wasted step. And um, as for how my process varies from the bigger industries, um, larger factories will obviously use bigger equipment. They I use stone refiners, but they'll use metal. Um, they're ones that have gigantic stainless steel rollers that do it very quickly in a matter of hours instead of days. They use these ball mills that basically shoot stainless steel balls around and smash into things and, and refine the different pieces of equipment that are usually much larger and much more expensive. And most chocolate makers working at my scale don't have the luxury to go to that size equipment right away. Also, it just obligates you to make larger batches than you might be able to sell to make it sense because you lose so much chocolate in the works getting there. Um, and That's really how I make it.
0: Very interesting. Thank you. So there are a few questions that I have uh, for you. So you were talking about roasting and how this is a step where you are adding your personality. But I also know that you mentioned uh, other ingredients that you put in your chocolate. And so I wanted uh, to uh, ask you, uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, you have a variety of different flavors. So can you talk to us a little bit of how you came up with them? What were the inspirations?
1: Sure. Um, for me, a lot of the really in- interesting part of chocolate making is exploring the flavors that exist within the bean of a particular region, or harvest, or variety, without adding stuff to it. So it's and that's kind of the the trend is the varietals or the origin based chocolate stuff. So for me, it's more interesting to find out what, for example, what's the difference between the cacao that was grown by this farmer and one over the hill or in the 2017 harvest versus 2018 or things like that. So I tend not to do a lot of things with inclusions inclusions can either be um, textural inclusions like um, solid pieces of nut or coconut or whatever, or something more upstream that would flavor it like vanilla or cinnamon or you know, spices and things like that, that would get refined in with it. I usually don't do a lot with those, but I, I do to have fun. So um, I will just usually I'll, I'll look around at different origins and see what, I'll take it through a bunch of different roast profiles and see if I like it and that becomes a flavor. So it's not so much that I'm sitting here adding all kinds of crazy extra stuff to it to, to make the perfect recipe for a chocolate bar that has a bunch of ingredients. It's generally two-ingredient stuff that I'm doing, it's just cacao and sugar. I will do occasionally a milk chocolate. Now, having said that, there are a few, because of the CSA format, there are a few flavors that have come in where I will occasionally let loose and have some fun with it. One example is the smoked chocolate. I'm a big fan of smoked foods in general. and Early on in my chocolate-making days, I decided to try to get smoke into chocolate, and it's a hard process. You don't want to kill your chocolate flavors with too much smoke. So that was um, just the result of a lot of tinkering around and um there's another one that I do that has uh, beer hops in it because I work in a brewery. So I take hops that the brewery uses and infuse it in the chocolate, in the cocoa butter, and then I use it to make a um, milk chocolate. It's called a dark milk chocolate because it has a higher cacao content than usual milk chocolates do. Um, so those are a couple of examples of flavored bars. Um, I'll do The flavored bars that I tend to do are usually one-offs for a seasonal thing. I might put spices in one or... Chilies for the CSA, things like that. But for the most part, it's uh, examining just the elemental aspects of the cacao itself.
0: Fascinating, thank you. Um, so the hops bar that you were mentioning uh, is the bar. Come, does it come out to be more bitter because of the hops, or what is the what is the flavor taste profile like?
1: Um, it's not bitter at all. It, that's part of the challenge is to keep it, the bitterness from getting in there in the cocoa butter, so it takes some time. Uh, the flavor, it captures very well to me the the um, the fragrance of hops, and, and this is just something I know because I happen to work in a brewery where part of their process throughout the week, they'll be dumping large quantities of the mash that went into the beer making and you'll get this beautiful aroma, depending on which hops they're using. It can be pineapple or citrus or flour or um, stuff that you often when you have a really strong IPA you don't appreciate that as much if if you're put off by the extreme bitterness so it's um it i would say it's more of a fruity floral aspect of the hops minus any bitterness in that particular bar
0: very interesting thank you so uh, Eric you talked about uh, getting uh, sourcing your beans from different places um, can you please talk to us a little bit more uh, about it where do you typically uh, purchase your beans or ingredients what is the chocolate trade is like today what are some of the things that we need to know you mentioned earlier about three types of uh, trees and uh, some of them being more susceptible to illnesses that that brought up in my mind the idea of shortages, and considering how much demand is today uh, for the chocolate, how do we approach this? How do we deal with this? So, if you could talk in general about that, and also what is, what are the better ways to source the for you, and also for uh, a consumer to think about when they are purchasing chocolate? That's
1: a big question. Okay, um, but uh, that's getting a lot of conversation right now. In fact, there was just a chocolate conference here last week where that was a huge topic of sourcing. Um, And the trick is, of course, so there's been pretty widely understood there's issues with child slavery or bad labor practices or exploitation and things like that. That's more thought to be an issue in West Africa, but it actually occurs around the world in various types. So for me, as a small chocolate maker, it's very hard to vet these companies. I can't travel to the origins and spend weeks and weeks looking things over and meeting them. So I typically have to rely on the best connection I can get beside that. And because of the growth in the craft chocolate world, there are a number of sorcerers coming out who make it their mission to take on that job of, of going to a new cacao producer and checking it seeing, you know, are they truly growing organic? I don't think they do the certifications themselves, but they, they collect all the paperwork. They go there and they do the visual inspections and things like that. So I kind of have to rely on the expertise of others and certifying organizations like the, the Fair Trade, Rainforest Alliance, and things. There, there are a few others out there. Um, so the ones that I buy in particular, I try to make it... the. The holy grail for chocolate makers is to have a direct connection to the greatest extent possible. So I have one, for example, that, well, the cacao from Hawaii, that's a special case. I buy it directly from the grower there. I buy a cacao from Nicaragua where I contacted the grower directly and we went by a um, shipping agent. So that's more or less a direct connection there. Um, in other cases, and there's, there's also a group, Uncommon Cacao, which does a lot of that. Um, some of the Dominican beans that I buy through them that way. There's also, in a more generic way, there's a shipping company down in New Jersey that brings cacaos in, and you can kind of pick them off like the menu, but you have to understand the certifications there because it's not a direct relationship. It's just something they brought in. And there's also a guy on the West Coast who's sort of the grandfather of home chocolate making. John Nancy runs a website called Chocolate Alchemy, and it's a great resource for people who are looking to learn more or get into it, he um, sort of pioneered getting some of the equipment working that would help people do this on the home scale. Went back in the mid-2000s, 2004, 6, 7, somewhere in there. Um, And he also sells cacao. He's done some of that legwork. So you can buy small quantities from him, and generally he doesn't sell stuff that has a reason to think it might have had a bad history behind it. Um, as a side note, it's not always easy for con- places to get certified organic. So, if, if like if, that, if that's a big priority, uh, you can buy a lot of cacao that are grown organically. But for whatever reason, pol- politics, for example, they they might not be able to do it because the the way the farmers are structured in their, that particular country.
0: That's good to know. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that um, when you started your business, you decided to run it in a, a CSA format. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? How did you come up with this idea? How did you end up uh, running, I guess, the only Somerville uh, uh, chocolate CSA? Um, what are the benefits uh, to you? And also, what are the benefits to uh, some of your customers? Uh, tell us how it works.
1: Yeah, that. so as I mentioned, it was at a time when I belonged to a vegetable CSA at the time. And you were beginning to see Kind of cute CSAs for other things that weren't strictly agricultural. There might have been a fish CSA or a milk, or maybe not milk, but but. Um, and it just kind of popped into my head while I was driving up to Portland to see my sister. They're like, oh, I should do a chocolate CSA. And the benefits to it are, I guess, those that a true CSA would have, where it gives you some financial security. You get paid up front. You know, you have a certain number of sales you'll have already. And it's an excuse to make more chocolate. That's what one of the things, because the problem is you make a batch of 10 to 2 pounds of chocolate and you're not going to eat it or you'll get sick or grossly overweight. So it, it's a way to, kind of an excuse to, to turn what I was already a hobby into something that would kind of pay for itself and create a reason to be doing more of it. And also, I was really a big fan of this idea of building a a chocolate community that was sort of in into that aspect of chocolate making, understand the chocolate geekery of, of the nuts and bolts and mechanics of chocolate, not just wanting salted caramel bonbons and things, but like, what is a cocoa bean and why is it this way? So those those three things are really, to me, what really motivated
0: it absolutely love it i love the idea and it also always feels like such a huge surprise because belonging to your csa um i never know what exactly to expect with the next uh, installment and it's always awesome and you're trying new flavors and you're trying new variety of different new chocolates and so it's certainly educating you as a consumer so i always appreciate that
1: that's my pleasure I, I refer to it as the. Um, it's the nation's oldest, sincerest, and most poorly managed chocolate CSA. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> it's a huge amount of work to get the harvests out, and it's always routinely about a month past when I think it's going to be because it's everything is new, so it's okay. always trying to discover new things, and sometimes things didn't work out. Or you know, I now have to rely on a lot of wholesale sales to pay bills since I've moved into my own chocolate space. So. Sometimes there's an ebb and flow where things have to work in sync with each other for the CSA harvest to come out.
0: Of course, of course. Yes. So, so yeah. one thing that you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago is that if you end up with a lot of different chocolate bars, you will, you will gain weight. Um, and so I mm-hmm. wanted to talk a little bit about, since this is a health and wellness podcast, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the health benefits. And so, um, I know that this is not uh, your main area of expertise. Your obsession is more with the chocolate and chocolate making. So in today's world, there is a, a lot of conversation on the benefits of uh, chocolate. About 8 or 10 years ago, I had a student that uh, did a presentation on the benefits of uh, chocolate. That was very interesting to me that... Um, this is something that have been known for quite some time, and yet uh, the research is coming out. And so we we do see and we do hear a lot of controversy. So um, for ages, we were told that chocolate is associated with diabetes and acne and weight gain and heart disease, but then things started to change. And so we started recognizing that there is a lot of uh, positive uh, research and uh, benefits uh, that relate to chocolate consumption that uh, started to appear. So between prevention of cognitive decline and um, findings related to prevention of stroke and things that relate to enhancement of athletic um, uh, performance, and uh, cardiovascular health and uh, stress. So these are some of the uh, big ones. Also something that really surprised me is enhancement or increased fetal growth. Um, I remember that uh, my mom always reminded me that she had to give up uh, chocolate for nine months that she was pregnant with me. But apparently today, we're learning that consumption of small amount of chocolate actually helps uh, the baby uh, to grow. I never realized that. Oh. So... As much as we're learning about health benefits, um, some of the things that come up is the types of chocolate, right? So there is dark, there is milk, there is white. And I know that you make all three of them. And so the research that appears... So I know that there are marketing claims that we hear from manufacturers that typically say, oh, if we are um selling milk chocolate or white chocolate, then there is, because milk is there, it helps to boost the protein and calcium levels. Um, Um, I am not 100% sold on this. I think that this, from my perspective, may be a little bit more of a marketing claim than anything else. But I know that dark chocolate is what has been researched the most. And so I wanted to pick your brain and ask you actually about the difference of how you make dark chocolate versus milk chocolate versus white chocolate. I know that the polyphenols that are found in uh, dark chocolate, This is; these are the compounds that are known for their antioxidant activity. And a lot of the health benefits are related to that. So for our listeners, if you can kind of like break down for us, what is the difference between making of this chocolate and also what are the profiles of flavors and tastes and what to expect? Could you do that for us?
1: Yes, certainly. Um, so the first question, a dark chocolate is Technically, dark chocolate has no dairy in it. So um, it's really just your percentage. And when you see, for example, a 70% chocolate bar, which is kind of a cliche in the starting point for dark, it, uh, there's no technical definition that I'm aware of. Um, there might be somewhere buried in an industry handbook as far as what when something is bittersweet or semi-sweet or dark and all that. Um, but in general, practically speaking, dark chocolate just means there's no dairy. Um, but, but a 70% bar will have... Obviously, 70% of the content of that bar is cacao, um, 30% being sugar. And what can complicate things a little bit is cocoa butter it traditionally was added to chocolate to improve the mouthfeel, give it a better snap and all that. That was traditionally, especially the classic European chocolate makers would do that. Cocoa butter is not really um, a cheap ingredient that you add to to save money. It's just you do it because you prefer the texture. But the result of that is that it can diminish the flavor of the chocolate a bit because you, well, it might be a 70% bar, for example, but it might actually contain 20% of that extra cocoa butter and it'll be really smooth and creamy, but maybe not as flavorful versus somebody else who might have entirely just the cacao nibs themselves and the sugar and you end up with a higher portion of cocoa solids in that 70% number. Cocoa butter itself is pressed from usually from poor quality beans in the industry where they'll put them in these gigantic hydraulic presses and squeeze the butter out save it because the butter does not retain the bad flavor qualities of a cacao so it's a good use for that and then they'll add it back to things so a dark chocolate um yeah it's just cacao and sugar a milk chocolate is obviously that adds powdered milk because you can't remember you can't put anything liquid into chocolate bars and um, usually a lot of extra cocoa butter to give it smoother texture. And in my particular case, um, I tend to work with chocolates at anywhere from 65 to maybe 85% that I do for dark. I don't usually add cocoa butter, so it's just basically the nibs and sugar. For a milk chocolate, when I do it, I tend to go to the mid 30% of cacao nibs. So that kind of gives you an order a reference there. It might have half the amount of actual chocolate solids in there. It also has 15 to 20% cocoa butter, 15 to 20% milk. I use a whole milk for that. So it has more fat in it and sugar usually is in the 30 to 35% range. So that's kind of the breakdown. A a milk chocolate as I make it might not be any sweeter, but it has a lot more milk fat in it, more cocoa butter. So it's just all around fattier. Um, So that's why a milk chocolate will be, you know, it has less of, of the polyphenols and things like that, just because there's less space for it in the composition and you have dairy. So I think that, well, yes, a milk chocolate is, um, it might have the good stuff in there. The fact that it's sweeter and fatter, just psychologically are more likely to eat a lot of it as a candy bar. So yeah, you might get the good stuff, but you get a lot of stuff that your body might not need in abundance along with it. So that's why people tend to focus on the dark chocolates and the, non-dairy. A white chocolate is a roughly third portions of sugar, powdered milk, and cocoa butter. And cocoa butter, as I mentioned before, was half the content of the cacao. So it's the cacao minus the solids. The solid portion would go off to be cocoa powder. The cocoa butter would be the cocoa butter. So it is legitimately chocolate in the sense that it has a cacao ingredient in it. But I don't think it would have um, any of the polyphenols, which I believe are the part of the solid. On the other hand, cocoa butter is a fairly good fat for you. It's not, I don't remember the scientific terms for it, but it, it's a, if you're going to eat a fat, it's a decent one to use. And in fact, I've known some people who actually request cocoa butter and they cook with it and do interesting stuff.
0: That makes sense. Thank you. I know a lot of people that absolutely love milk chocolate, but are very... Picky in terms of the dark chocolate, they they just don't uh, enjoy it as much. And you mentioned the fact that uh, for yeah. many of us, because there is milk and because there is fat and because there is sugar, so just the composition of it, um, it's just more of a candy bar, right? And with the yeah, yeah. So the with the dark chocolate, there is more. It's a more complex flavor, and so uh, certain things we have to get used to or develop a taste for, right? I really don't know too many people that. Uh, loved coffee from the first sip or loved beer from the first sip. So certain things you really start appreciating the more you taste them. And I think dark chocolate kind of falls in this category a little bit.
1: Yeah, definitely. People approach it, especially in this country where we grew up with Hershey's and things like that, which is just marginally chocolate. It served its purpose when you're falling asleep on the road and you need to stop at a gas station. But so that it's sort of like a question of extremes because we're going from that and we went on overdrive here, where a lot of us, we chocolate makers, um, believe in kind of presenting the dark chocolate as as God prepared it. So we don't really add, tend not to add cocoa butter, for example. So you, you'll get a dark chocolate that's very intense and less creamy. And I think that can be hard for people at first to get a 85% bar of a really lean, you know, Venezuelan Criollo or something, where you break it and it has a not just a snap but a crunch. <laughs> Um the benefit to that is you get just really cool flavors. See, um, if you can get past the initial what happened to my candy bar reaction it, um, and really savor it, break off tiny little pieces, you can just um, really appreciate the whole flavor profile, how it starts and finishes and the texture. And the, There's a lot to really understand in there.
0: I absolutely love that. And so, so perhaps a good uh, rule of thumb from you: How do you actually eat good chocolate?
1: Oh uh, well, you. when well, there are different steps. People have their own little protocols, but generally, the first thing you do is you break off a piece, and you pay attention to how it snaps, and you can kind of gauge the temper based on that. You can sort of cup it and smell it and see if it has a good aroma to it. That often is a precursor of what's going to come. If it has a nice, does it smell acidic or funky or or do you get some of the character of the bean right away? Um, And then you start to let it melt in your mouth and you um, that's where it's sort of a more personal thing, but I like to kind of let it melt a bit before you become aware of its flavor. And then you to me it's sort of like a symphony of flavors where you use what do you notice at first what flavors come and go what comes later what lasts throughout and um it to me it's just kind of like the whole ride of flavors notes where a lot of them come and go and they're on schedule and also you gauge the texture while you're at it um is it really smooth is it too smooth is it deliberately gritty you know and how does it finish it, it's really um it's a tasting through a period of time um does it have a bitter finish to it is there astringency there are certain notes which can indicate a bad chocolate if it's got a lot of astringency or bitterness or funky moldy flavors um acrid rubber sometimes especially in the craft chocolate world where you might buy a bar from someone who's not really as experienced yet you might get flavors that they they should have roasted it differently it got over roasted and get kind of a char flavor, you can kind of identify notes like that. Um, maybe they added too much cocoa butter, so you might notice that, like it just tastes too pasty and you feel like it's overly smooth. So that's the kind of stuff you've, you you um, focus on while you're sampling. Uh, it's not quite, I like to think that the world of tasting chocolate is not as evolved as the wine world. We don't have chocolate sommeliers yet. So there's a bit of a Wild West to it where you can use your own words to describe flavors. And um, it can be both frustrating from people who want to have a standardized language and refreshing to people who like the free nature of it where you can do what you want, you know.
0: But I think you're bringing up a very interesting point that um, the the world of chocolate tasting is has not uh, developed or evolved uh, as much, and so perhaps there is room for that, and perhaps there is room for someone to uh, educate people and to uh, help us to learn more about like what makes a good quality of chocolate and how really um, to think about it in a different way.
1: Let's say that that is a big thing right now. And because the, the craft chocolate world is fairly new, you have a lot of people out there who are trying to be at the forefront of tasting. So groups trying to establish tasting protocols or um, curricular offering programs and tasting and be certified taster in one group or another. And it's all for the better. In, in some ways, it's kind of like people jockeying to become the, the renowned expert and things. Or on the flip side, there's a group here um, who's doing great work, the Fine Cacao and Chocolate Institute of America, I think it's the FCCI. We just had a conference this last week, and their goal is to try to standardize the way we taste chocolate before it's been refined or roasted. So they're developing ways to go into the field, try cacao, and examine the flavors and standardize the descriptors so that people can go kind of like they do in the coffee world, where they grade stuff and, and understand flavors in the field where it really matters before the cacao is sent to be worked with by people like me. So that's, a, that's to me, an important area where they really could use some standardization so that people can evaluate cacao upstream and on an analytical level and be providing feedback very quickly to the people who are growing
0: it and fermenting it. This is very interesting. Thank you. So so speaking of all the resources that you have been uh, mentioning, I want to pick your brain a little bit more about this. So are there local resources that you would recommend to someone who is a, a, a consumer? Um, are there some resources that you could recommend to someone who just wants to educate a little bit more about chocolate, chocolate eating, chocolate tasting, um, uh, chocolate uh, trading? You started your own journey with the uh, travels to Costa Rica? Are there places that someone, if they're interested, would consider exploring uh, as far as travels go? So anything that makes sense for you, uh, remembering that perhaps majority of our listeners do not know as much as you do, and probably many of them are uh, still very much beginners in the world of chocolate?
1: Well, in a local sense, I would recommend going to a good store, um, a place like, for example, Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge or in the south end. They have people working there who really know their chocolate, and they have a curated collection. Um, pistachi Nuts in Watertown, for example, is another place. There are other stores where people will taste it, and they are great resources. If you want to talk to somebody and say, hey, what? You know, this is what interests me in chocolate. I don't understand it very well, and they can kind of guide you. They're very patient and good at it. Obviously, there's a price, price point in the, this kind of chocolate. It's You can expect to pay anywhere from eight to, you know, oh. up into the teens for a chocolate bar, kind of for the reasons we've gone over. It's just a huge process going into it. So I would say stores are um, like that are a good way. Um, you can also connect with um, groups online. You're always welcome to come by my shop. I love to show people samples and we I can talk your ear off about what you should be trying out. Um, more globally, there are people online who sell uh, chocolate subscription services, sort of like the CSA that I do, but where they collect groups of chocolate bars from people around the world. And every month they'll send you Not stuff made by one maker like me, but from different makers, but they'll usually try to have a lesson involved or a theme, like let's try different, you know, a classic African cacao variety versus a Dominican versus a Central American or something like that. So you can kind of learn a lot from those people. I think if you have the appetite for it, you can go onto the forums on Chocolate Alchemy and you'll see 10 years of comments and it's... It's not like a Facebook page, so it's a little bit less picture, picture, more text type thing, but there's some great information on the Chocolate Alchemy website. Mm-hmm. There's also the, the Chocolate Life is another that Clay Gordon did, which is also equally old and well thought of. It's a website where more, not for makers, but also for chocolatiers. It covers both bases there. And there's a lot of information on chocolate there. And you can always plunk around and see... Um, for tasting groups and things like that, people will post, you know, updates. Locally, there are mm, no one's really doing tastings. Okay. That I'm more of um, there are some people in town who are doing chocolate tours, mm-hmm. where you can go and tour chocolate stores.
0: Eric, as we're coming to an end of this conversation of this interview, I have two more questions uh, for you. So the first one is, how can someone learn more about you, your business, and also from you? And my second question is, do you have a um, few words of wisdom for our audience, or maybe some parting thoughts on chocolate and just the experiencing chocolate?
1: Oh, um, well, to learn more from me just um, send me an email and I'm a one person shop at the moment and I love visitors. So if you come by, um, obviously you have to be more available during the weekday than the weeknight, but um, I'll show you around and talk your ear off about everything I know.
0: And, and also what your website is.
1: Uh, the website is um, SomervilleChocolate.com. Perfect. One
0: word. Perfect. Note, Thank no,
1: you. I think the thing with chocolate, well, a couple things. The try to keep an open mind about it, and if you don't like something, try it again, and avoid. To me, there's like this bravado about dark. The darker the better, and it's got to be ch- dark. And milk is garbage, and white is garbage. Like there's some great work out there, whether it has grasshoppers or you know. Just keep an open mind and understand why it is that craft, what What is what is this interesting about craft chocolate, and why we're doing what we're doing. It's expensive for a reason because it's kind of pushing an envelope that hasn't been pushed before. Um, and also, because this is the wellness, I mean, it, it's great that there are health benefits for chocolate. I tend not to push, I understand them and I tell people about them, but um, to me, there's a delicate line there because I always tell people if you're relying on your chocolate bar for your nutrition, then you have other problems with your diet. <laughs> so it's like, you're yes, it has polyphenols right. and things. Ultimately, kale is great for you. Dish is great, you know, all these kinds of things. So I try not to overly hype that aspect in my own way because it's, it's great, but um, I don't want to be, I want you to enjoy chocolate because of it's more than that, because it's um, a thing with a thousand years of history behind it and huge depth of flavor some would argue it's even more interesting than some of the other foods that we assume like coffee. And there's, the variety of flavors you can get and chocolate are immense, so take your time, enjoy it. Um, don't don't pressure yourself. you don't worry about whether you should enjoy this or that. It's the personal experience.
0: I absolutely love it. Eric, thank you so much. This was most fascinating. Thank you. Oh,
1: thank you. My pleasure.
0: Thanks again. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Eric Parks. You can find all the links mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 55. Please subscribe to the show to get the future episodes automatically downloaded to your device. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcasts. This is the best way to help others to learn about the Wellness Insider Network, and it also helps to bring wonderful uh, guests like Eric to join us here. This episode is proudly brought to you by Tamim Teas. Tamim Teas is a local company specializing in creation of medicinal mushroom teas. Two of my con- currently favorite blends are Lion Maitake Clarity and Rishi Delight. I use them to enhance cognition and for their effect on the immune system. Few episodes back, I interviewed Liat Racine, the creator of these beautiful teas about the science and art of mushroom blending. To get 15% off on your first online purchase, please enter the promo code Tamim for health at www wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash Tamim before 2019. You can also get free shipping with your purchase uh, of two blends or more. To get additional information on this, please head over to the show notes, wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 55. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you.